Welcome to Bite Size Dental Marketing. Today I have David Goodman. David was Managing Director of LB Goodman, and I know that you guys merged recently with PKF O'Connor Davies, correct? Yes. My favorite thing, and we talked about it on the pre-show, you have beaten me and I admire you for it. Of I have always wanted to publish an annual report or data around the economics and benchmarking of what practices do. And in preparing for the show, I knew, I knew you had it. I loved how you laid out the, the cost and the collections and expenses. And before we jump in, I, the question I had was, I saw you, you in this benchmarking report, which we'll link in the show notes, you had, you know, collections from 500 to 725, 725 to 950 and over 950. And I love how you broke down the costs and the structures and, and you know, the production per doctor and everything. Why did you come up with those ranges and what led you to build the report? And, and also, I would love to hear how you got started in dentistry. So you can go either direction you want to go. But The story of the dental book and the, and the ranges is that we, we actually saw a difference in smaller practices, um, how much um, income they provided to the owner. And that's kind of where we kind of set off, set off the, the cutoffs in, in, hmm. in those, those data points. What happens is in a smaller practice, we find that maybe 45, even 50% of practice collections can go to the benefit of the owner. As the practice grows, you find the percentage of the revenue decreasing that goes to the owner. However, that as a dollar amount, it is increasing. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you have a $500,000 practice and you're getting, you know, a 50% of collections, you're collecting 250. But now you have a million dollar practice and you're collecting 40%, you now are making $400,000. So that's kind of where we, you know, people said, well, you know, why should I grow my practice or where's the optimal point where I should be where I could get the most profit for myself? And so we wanted to be able to demonstrate in the numbers where that is. We have smaller practices that we don't even provide data on anymore because it's it's just too small. You know, the the doctor who's 89 years old and still going to the office, um, you know, there's just not a lot of, of work they can do. And there's also startup practices that don't have a lot of good data that we can use. But once we have like a good track record and we feel that the practice is kind of reached a, a plateau, that's where we then start to include the data in our survey numbers. And we're working on a new project right now on data. One of the things that we're working on right now is we want to try and figure out what makes our top performing practices top performing practices? What mm -hmm. distinguishes mm -hmm. them from other practices? And so is it the type of procedures that they're doing? So we look at some practice, we look at all of our practices, for example, and we say, okay, you know, most of our practices are doing X number of sealants, okay, and they're average performing practices. But our practices that are higher performing, for whatever reason, are doing more sealants than practices mm -hmm. that are not. Now, not that sealants will like generate a lot of money in your, in your bank account, but what does it say about a practice that's talking to their patients? And talking to their patients about, you know, the importance of sealants and actually getting them to to have that procedure done. Or is it, you know, crown to filling ratios where 
the doctors are talking to their patients more about the importance of getting a crown rather than a filling in certain situations and do those practices perform better. And what we found in those two examples is, yes, a practice that provides more sealants to their patients is performing better Hmm. than a practice that is not. And a practice that is um, doing more crown to filling ratios, a a better ratio, we're finding that those practices are performing better. So we've always said, and and this is this is you know we've been doing this for ten years now. Speaking, we used to go try to sell treatment. So we would try to sell Invisalign. So we would try to sell. Oh, I can bring you you know all in four cases, or I can bring you cosmetic cases. And and marketing companies still promise that, but I I, I think it's a lot of a lot of nonsense. I can bring you a patient who needs work. And it's up to you to diagnose and sell the work. And in fact, we've changed our model almost over the past five to seven years of, I'm not trying to sell teeth. I'm trying to sell you like the dentist is the product Mm -hmm. and your ability to connect with the person will be so much more powerful than someone coming to you and saying, I need a crown. And, and in fact, the, the person coming to say, I need a crown is probably only going to accept the treatment presentation around the crown, not around anything else. And so we've shifted our model to be this very like, we're trying to accelerate the connection of the patient doctor experience and highlight the doctor skills and their approach and what it means to them and things. And I think that ties back to what you're saying is I would imagine that the connection an office makes with their patients probably lies in that sealant number somewhere. I, I, I think you're right. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think it's very true. Now, what you'll hear, though, is here's the pushback that you get from the doctors is I don't have time. You know, I'm seeing a patient every hour. And I don't have time to, to, to stop and, mm. and have a nice, comfortable chat with them. So here's, here's the trick that we use with our doctors. It's not about having a full schedule every day. It's about meeting production goals on a daily basis. And -hmm. in some cases, you know, you might meet your production goal with one patient for the day. And now how much of a connection can you make with that patient when you don't have anything else to do, but do this large case for them and learn about them and learn about their families and learn about, you know, why they've chosen you and what's important to them, that that relationship continues on the next time they come in. They're not just there for that big case and they're, they're moving on. So we try and help our doctors like set production goals. And how do we come up with our production goals? Well, the question starts with how much money you want to make this year. Yeah. And then we work backwards because we have the overhead data and the statistics to get them to where, okay, well, you know, this is how much you need to produce. And then we break it down. How many days you want to work this year? And, you know, how much is hygiene mm-hmm. going to get you? Mm-hmm. And, and now you can spend the time with your patients knowing that you're going to make your money that you want to make and you're going to be able to have a much better schedule than dealing with, you know, the ups and downs of my schedule is packed today and I don't know if I'm going to get to see everybody. And the next day there's nobody on your, your uh, calendar and you're like, what do I do with my schedule? Nobody's ever going to come back and see me. It's a really stressful <laughs> way to work. It's just so much nicer to just work even keel and just know I'm making my numbers and that's what I'm about. You know, there's, there's the, the, the thing that really drives me with the dentist is mm-hmm. the numbers. Now, what, what led to the creation of this report and how did it all get started? 
Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I love to talk about, you know, how I got into dentistry. I'm actually um, a second generation dental CPA. My dad was LB Goodman and um, he started out um, on his own after breaking away from a, a pretty large regional firm to start his own practice in the sunroom, sunroom at our, in our home um, when I was about four years old. And he had gone to high school and grew up locally. And so he had some friends from high school that were around. And one of them happened to be an attorney. And the attorney was going to banks to generate business for himself. And a local dentist walked into a bank and shared that he had gotten in trouble with his wife and his receptionist and that the marriage was dissolving and he needed somebody to help him out. So the bank referred the attorney who happened to be my dad's friend and he said, you're going to need a really good accountant to help you out here. And so brought in my dad and the, the three of them worked on the divorce and got the settlement and the dentist was thrilled. Just so happens that the dentist was also a um, professor at Fairleigh Dickinson's Dental School, which mm. is unfortunately closed in the late 1980s. But he told all of his students and all of the other instructors at the dental school that they needed mm. to work with my dad because he really understood what was going on. And my dad started working with these dentists at all stages of their careers. I joined the firm in 1989 after spending a couple of years with a, uh, a big four accounting firm. And um, after a few years of learning how to do the work of a, a smaller accounting firm, I realized that we had this you know, niche with dentists. And I also realized that what we knew was really what they wanted to hear and what they wanted to know rather than just, okay, here's your tax return, sign on the dotted line, write your check, and we're done. And so the first thought process was, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we had some sort of chart of accounts format that we could work with and make all the dental practices look the same on paper? And then it would be easy to start to kind of compile the data. And, you know, it, it, takes, it takes time and effort to do this outside of the regular accounting work and tax preparation that you're doing. But the dentists were more than happy to provide us with information as we asked for it. And so we, we started to design all of this. And then in 2001, um, we joined the Academy of Dental CPAs as one of the original firms to join. And it was at that point in time that other members of the, of the ADCPA were sharing how they did things. And so I took bits and pieces from different firms and put together something that really represented our niche, which is the New York metro area. Now I'm just like, I'm, I'm just bitten by the data bug. And I just keep trying to look at ways to look at practices differently and find ways to generate efficiency and profitability for the, the dentists we work with and anybody else who's interested in what we have to say and do. Now, that's great. What are some of the key trends you're seeing over the past two years or so? Yeah, so we're talking about post-COVID here. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen a really nice bounce back um, after COVID. Uh, there was a big surge right after, you know, the, the restrictions were lifted on practices. And we saw a little bit of a continuation of them into um, 2022. Uh, we're just wrapping up our 2022 numbers right now. And um, our dental book for the 2022 data will be ready sometime um, in mid-November. But what we're seeing right now is that that 
that increase has continued. The average practice revenue has kind of gone up and uh, inching towards close to $900,000 in collections. And that's really a good number because, you know, three or four years ago, pre-COVID, I was probably talking about, you know, $800,000 was the average practice collection. But with the increase in collections, there's a there's a uh, an increase in overhead that goes along with it, and um, what we're seeing on the overhead size side is um, definitely an increase in employee compensation and benefits. But you know, if the doctors are smart, they know how to overcome that with you know just increasing their their fees um, to to pay for those expenses. And so we're also seeing an increase in dental supplies and an increase in labs, all, all just you know with inflationary factors going on, but. The doctors are still maintaining their profitability. We're not really seeing a decrease in the terms of percentage of collections that are that are going to the doctors and their associates in the practice. That's very much in alignment with what our firm sees as well. Is we most of our practices are up from both a, a volume of new patients as well as a production, but it is getting more expensive to do business across the board uh, for us as well. I mean, <laughs> goodness. We just got our health care, health insurance back. Our premiums went up for our agency, you know, 32%. And I know. And when you're a small business, that that hurts. And, you know, yeah, I don't know how dentists aren't looking at their fee structures and and going going to town. Now, I have a a question. I'm ignorant enough to ask my question and I'm confident enough. My my wife will tell you that I'm often wrong, but never in doubt. So uh, this is one of those questions. I love that confidence. (laughs) Yeah. I had some data from 2006, 2008, sort of recessionary period. And it showed the average practice dropped very, very minimally. And I'm talking to the tune of, you know, 6% in the worst year. And, and you know, it's easy to say recession-proof, you know, Procter Gamble's recession-proof and, you know, Johnson & Johnson. How recession-proof do you think dentistry is and how much fear-mongering do you think goes on in dentistry around around recession-based economy talk? In the same time period that you saw like that 6% decrease, we saw mm-hmm. only about an 8 to 10% decrease in, in practice collections during that okay, time so period. I was, uh, so my data wasn't that far off. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. And, and, and that's, you know, my data is the New York metro area. I'm sure that you have mm-hmm. a larger geographical area and maybe on average across, you know, your data points, you're probably looking at 6%. But yeah, we saw about 8 to 10%. Nobody cried. Nobody was really upset. They worked a little harder, but that was okay. Is dentistry recession proof? I think, and and this is this is really my opinion is I think that a lot of of the technology in dentistry has allowed people to keep their teeth longer and to stay healthy. And as we're starting to transition now into more cosmetic type of treatment, that maybe we might not necessarily see dentistry being so recession proof in the Mm. future if a lot of the types of treatment that people are seeking are you know more um cosmetic rather than um you know diagnostic preventable type and restorative type treatment so we'll have to see but you know there still is a reason for dentistry and we saw even, you know, post-COVID how people really valued their health care and came back to work. 
So I think in the short term, maybe we'll still see it being recession proof, but maybe in the longer term, it may or may not. But I, yeah. I think that there's going to be a little bit more of that that uh, cosmetic edge to this than the non, you know, medical related work. I, I would agree. I, th- I think the restorative work is going to stay very healthy. I think that the practices that make connections with their patients and have that good patient flow and that good connection. And if, if I say you need Invisalign, you're going to get Invisalign. But I do think we're, we would see a slowdown of the people looking for specific cosmetic procedures. I, I tend to agree with you. Yeah. Now, this kind of other fascinating topic I wanted to get into is when I think of our most successful offices, I have a persona in mind of what separates them and, and you know, what drives the numbers. Through your career and, and having access to all this data, what, what are the common elements that a million dollar plus practice has for you? Or, or you, take your top. 10% of practices, what are the common elements that they have? So first of all, it starts with the dentist and the dentist having a vision and sharing that vision with the team and acting as a leader. It's so important to to be a leader in a team, to encourage people, to give them a vision to work towards, to, to help them understand why they're there. Teamwork is so important in the dental office. And um you know, I'm I, I'm thinking about writing this article. I'm just going to throw it out there now. Um, Adam Grant, who um, is very well known for his socioeconomic views of the world, um, talks often about the study that was done about surgeons and um, how when they change hospitals, they may not necessarily be as good as the hospital they were with because the team that they were with understood the weaknesses and the strengths of the doctor who was leading the operations and leading the medical team. And they would support them on those those um, procedures that were being done so that the doctor was successful. The same thing applies in a dental practice. You really need that team behind you. And so they are leaders. They set an example. Um, they live in a, in a in uh, integrity, they're not overselling their dentistry. The team, uh, you know, supports the doctor and agrees with the decisions that are going on. That's where you have the successful practices. The practices, because what you find is when you have that type of relationship with your team, you'll find that these are the offices that are neater, cleaner, better organized, because everybody gets it. Everybody understands how important it is to to take care of the patients and give them the best possible care. And that's where then you start to see the numbers demonstrate that everybody is together and in line with what the practices are trying to accomplish. There's a book that I love, and it's called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And it was written by the guys who started Basecamp. Oh, okay. And I I like it because they really break down i think what you said and but 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 specifically the thing i liked about the book and, and in fact we practice at our company we don't set financial goals in our in our agency so we don't say i'm going to grow by 20% or i want to grow by by 70% or i want to grow by we set goals around the activities and culture that we want to be so uh, one of them was i we want to have an industry voice so that was a goal of 2023 and, you know, we saw the launch of the podcast and, and other stuff in this year. And because the assumption that they're making is if you're doing the right things, if you're leading your team the right way, the money will be what it 
would it be? And any time that I have said, okay, I want to make a million dollars or I want to, I want to be a $22 million agency or whatever the case may be, I've inevitably gotten frustrated because if I, if I don't do the underlying activities to make that happen, it's just, it's just a dream. It's not really a goal. Right. Um, that, to kind of build on what you said, I think uh, leadership of the dentist and I think the culture of the office is a direct result of that. And before you have to refresh my memory, you mentioned a book, like three signs of a miserable practice. And <laughs> remind me again what it was. Right. So there's a book by Patrick Len Lencioni. Um, it's called Three Signs of a Miserable Job. And hmm. so I kind of took a twist on it and applied it to dental practices um, and called it Three Signs of a Miserable Practice. And so the, the example is anonymity is one of the three signs. Anonymity meaning you don't know your patients, you don't know your staff, you know, you're just coming in every day, seeing mouths and leaving. And it's so important for you to, to recognize that, first of all, your team members have lives outside the office and to acknowledge that and mm -hmm. to be connected with them. Um, that's a way that, you know, leaders in a practice can connect with their team and to remember what those conversations are about and check back in with them later on and say, you know, I heard about your son, you know, you told me they were going to the baseball game. Well, how did that work out? You know, share with me. I know you're a real person and, and you have a real life outside of the, the office. And the same thing applies to your patients is also talking to your patients and connecting with them and saying, you know, hey, um, you know, what's going on? You know, how, how can I help you? How's the family? It's not just really just pecking at the teeth and, and moving on. Mm -hmm. And um, I like to acknowledge the what I call Gawandi's rule, which is actually what Gawandi came up with and said, you know, ask the unanswered questions. You know, if you notice something different, ask about it, what, whatever it could be. If it's not necessarily in the mouth, it could be, you know, the clothes that they've been coming to your office and, you know, they always come in, you know, in a suit and tie and all of a sudden they're in jeans and a t-shirt. Well, you know, ask the question, what, what's changed? Why are you not in a jacket and tie? You know, it's okay for them to say, oh, I just took the day off, but maybe they might have a, you know, a, an employment issue. You just, you just don't know. So, you know, these are the, the things in, in, in anonymity. But the other thing that I think is important of the three things, the, the third one is always measuring something and using data points and seeing how you can improve. But the, the second one is, is relevancy. And that's really the doctor kind of remembering why they chose to be a dentist. And then sharing that with the team. I chose to be a dentist because I wanted to help people. I wanted to have people with, I wanted to work with people and give them great smiles or confidence. And I feel good about that when I do that. You share that type of stuff with your team. They now understand why they're coming to work. They understand the relevancy of being in the office and what you're trying to accomplish every day. And so every day you can feel good about yourself when you leave and say, hey, we accomplished what we set out to do for today. Let's come back and do it again tomorrow. Obviously, we got into our companies and roles and things for some degree of money. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any dentist that wasn't aware of the money when they got into it. How do you articulate your role? Like, because I, I started the agency because it never felt right working for someone else. I, I had this burning ambition of working for myself. And, you know, I grew up in rural Oklahoma and, and, and was raised on Copenhagen, Coca-Cola and wrestling. And, and, you know, those three things are not not particularly endearing to your teeth. So I, so I did need dental work as a young man. And my first experience was very poor with the dentist. Um, so uh, to kind of tie that to John Broso, who was a wonderful human being. He used to 
talked to my mom while she was going through chemo and he was a dentist. So I, I grew up and, and went to work at Procter and Gamble and some other places. And, and one day he needed help. And of course, I'm going to help this man. And all I did was write ads that I think I would be interested in. Crazy enough. As someone who needed dental work and, and trying to do right by a man who helped, helped my mother when, when uh, you know she needed it. I think I have a good origin story of how the company got founded. But my my question revolves of when I start getting into dentists, because we have a version of this in marketing, you know, we want to know their why. Why are they doing it? And they really have trouble articulating why, right? What do you talk what do you say to someone who's fallen out of love with being a dentist? And you ask them and they hear all these amazing origin stories and they hear all these amazing things, but and they're like, Man, I'm I'm just trying to survive today. What how do you handle that burnout at this point? Yeah, if you think I haven't had those conversations, <laughs> I've yeah. had, I think, way too many of them. But I, I you know, that you, you put your, your CPA psychology hat on, which you, you wear all too often and never been trained in it. But um, I think you start slowly and you, you can't just, you know, cram it down their throat. If, if you've gotten to the point of burnout, there's a problem. And it has to be solved. So let's fix it. And I'll give you two examples of situations where I, I met with doctors who were burned out. I met with a husband and, and wife team, I'm going to say it's probably about eight years ago. And she had like a four-year-old daughter. And she and her husband were working three nights a week till like eight o'clock at night. And um, I asked the doctors, if they knew their four-year-old daughter, and that's where the tears start flowing, right? And I tried to figure out why they were working so late, why they were putting in the hours that they were putting in. And when I understood what their, their issues were, I said, let's fix that. Next week, you don't work anymore past five o'clock. You go home and you be with your family. You understand the importance of it. But they were so concerned about the revenue that they thought they were going to lose from their practices. And I said, no, don't worry about it. We're going to figure this out. I said, if you understand why you're coming into the office every day, why you chose to be a dentist, the rest is going to be easy. But the connection they made with their families really got them re-inspired to come into the office and with a different mindset. Mm. So that was one one situation. I have another situation where a doctor took over his father's practice. His father had retired and just gave it over to the son. And um, the doctor worked in the city but lived out in the suburbs. And he had two teenage daughters who grew up without their dad sitting around the dinner table. And his kids now were grown and they had graduated from college and he just could not stand coming into work. So when the conversation was, why can't you, why can't you stand coming into work? What's the problem? It turned out that it was his team. They were miserable people because he was. Mm-hmm. And I said, they're a reflection of you. If you come in with a, you know, a, a smile on your face and an excitement for the day and for what you're doing, I said, that will change them. And if it doesn't change them, they're going to leave because they don't want to be there with this, some cornball guy who went from Mr. Miserable to Mr. Happy, and you're going to find the right people who are going to want to be with you. But you, 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 you have this really big struggle in dealing with people that burn out. And I do have the great success story about a doctor who told me he was completely done 
he didn't want to do this anymore. And the unfortunate part of this is he never really planned appropriately for his retirement. And I said to him, well, if you want to walk away from this, you can, but you have a practice that's worth $1.2 million. It's worth $1.2 million. I said, and you can walk away from it. I said, or you can stick it out until you're ready to, until you've accumulated enough money to be able to retire and know that this is going to be a substantial amount of money that's going to make a difference for him. And then the most unfortunate thing happened. His landlord knocked on his door and said, I'm knocking down the building. And what was the doctor able to do? The doctor was able to find a new location and build a state-of-the-art dental practice that was now going to be ready to be sold to two young doctors who were incredibly excited to be a part of a practice that was, you know, the most modern, you know, laid out beautiful practice. And he he worked two more years after he built the new practice. So it was like three years in total Mm -hmm. and was able to retire and was able to sell the practice. And he spent those three years paying down a lot of that debt with the practice revenue so that he didn't he got a lot of that cash flow and he is happily retired i still do his taxes and um you know there is that burnout i think you probably have it yourself i know i have it myself um and you just got to find that place or talk to that person that's going to let you know that you know it's going to be okay and find that that purpose find that reason again get refreshed and come back and get going as you're talking I love what you said about burnout, but it just echoed how powerful having a team, a leadership team around you is as a dentist who knows the industries. I think that one of the value that we provide, and I, I know that as an industry-specific CPA you provide, is while this is an incredibly unique situation to them, you've probably handled 25 other cases exactly like it or very near to it. So you do understand the metrics of what to do in a bad, you know, an office that's being off the move, an office that needs to retool with new technology, an office that needs to add an associate. And I find that that's so undervalued by dentists. And what's interesting is they'll admit that they become myopic. And then you say, okay, well, you know, who's your CPO? My, my, you know, my wife's sister's brother's friend does it. It's like, man, like what? I want someone who's been in the fire and has, you know, a hundred of the practices like mine. I don't want a guy who just knows, you know, ERP credit or whatever the, 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 what's the PC? <laughs> right. ERT, yeah. Right. yeah. Just because someone is employee retention tax credit. Yeah. If just because I can say it doesn't make me a good, a good CPA for dentists, because I happen to know a lot of guys that got into trouble over that that are dentists because you know they're but yeah that has to be you know so powerful when you look at dentists because you know i i think there says something to when you can look at a practice and and look at the supply line and and look at how much they're spending on on advertising and promotions and look at how they're spending on ce and things like this and, and help bring them into alignment to build a more profitable practice i always say and you know it do, it doesn't just apply to dentistry I always say any business owner should work with somebody who is their CPA, who understands their business, understands their profession. And so you just pointed out, you know, the reasons why any dentist should work with 
not just somebody who has a couple of dental clients here and there. Uh, I, I refer to them as Murray the Trunk Slammers. Um, I really think that they should be working with somebody that really can give them insight and help them. And, you know, the whole mantra for the team at LB Goodman um, before we joined PKF O'Connor Davies, and we still have this mantra, is that we help people with the things that they can't help themselves with and that we have the skills and ability to help them. We want to come to work every day and make a difference in people's lives. And by doing that, which is the same thing that any other business can do, just like a dentist, you get the rewards for it. And that's what's what I think is really important and what drives me to be helping people like dentists to be successful in their practices and in their lives. David, what a what a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And, and gosh, uh, so David Goodman, PKF O'Connor and Davies, and we'll link to your site and your bio and, and you know, uh, share the amazing report. And I'm excited to see the 2022 uh, version come out. But thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate it. This has been fun.